You like tests? There are some I like, there are some I don't like. Let me tell you about one test that I really didn't like. When I was in high school, it was called the Cooper Test. I don't know why it was called the Cooper Test. My guess is that there was an evil, maniacal man with the last name Cooper that invented it. Uh, here's what the test was. I played soccer, and to make the varsity soccer team, you had to complete the Cooper Test, which was running two miles in 12 minutes. And so every morning during preseason, you would show up at the track, and the first thing you did is you attempted to complete two miles in 12 minutes. And if you didn't, the next morning when you showed up, you tried again. And then the next morning you tried again. And then the next morning you tried again. And I hated the Cooper test. I am not a good distance runner at all. I can sprint all day long if you give me short little breaks. But for whatever reason, if you ask me to run long distances, my brain goes into mental shutdown mode. For those of you that run cross country or run marathons, I have no idea how you do it. You are much mentally stronger than I am. I never did complete the Cooper test. I hated it. Uh, I eventually made the varsity soccer team, but not because I completed the Cooper test, but I think I just hung around long enough that the coach had pity on me and finally put me on the varsity team. Can't stand the Cooper test. You know what tests I love? I love standardized tests. I don't know if that makes me weird, but like the ACT, the SAT, the GRE, you put me in front of a standardized test. I enjoy every minute of it. It doesn't stress me out. I think of it like a puzzle, like a game. I think I can beat this test even if I don't know the answers to the questions. I can figure out how to mark the right circle. I don't know. There's just something about sitting down in front of a standardized test that I enjoy. I don't know if it makes me weird. I just like it. There are some tests I like, some tests I don't like. The reason I'm even talking about tests is that we are in a series where we are methodically working through the book of 1 John. And it has been suggested several weekends now that John is providing for us essentially three tests for us to go through or to think about. Uh, it's the theological test, the social test, and the moral test. And there's a chance that if you've been sitting through this series so far that you're thinking to yourself, I really don't like tests and I really don't want to sit through a whole series of tests because it can feel like what this series might be suggesting to you is we're going to continually every weekend ask you to pass these tests and if you're not passing this test, you're just not a good Christian. And it feels very, it could feel very judgmental if you take it that way. That's not what's going on in 1 John. Then that's not even the intention of the series, obviously, if we're trying to communicate well what's going on in 1 John. I want to suggest to you that these tests, these themes that we see woven through the letter of 1 John are actually really good things, really helpful things. They bring clarity. They bring, they bring clarity uh, to things that are really important for us. Things like, what is Christianity and am I a Christian? Like, at the end of the day, what is all of this all about? Like, what is this? What are we doing? What makes it Christian? What makes you a Christian? Is it just being here? Right? I'm not sure we always have abundant clarity on what Christianity is or what being a Christian is. The, the waters can get really muddy. Have you ever seen somebody rant on Facebook? You know, like they have a bad day at work, and so they go home and they rant about their boss, which, by the way, is a really bad idea. Your boss has Facebook, too. You know, we all know that's a public forum, right? Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. Well, I, every once in a while, I see a rant about Christianity. And I read them. I actually enjoy reading them uh, because I read them and I try to imagine, okay, what caused this person to sit down at their computer and write all of this? Something happened. And then I, I read through the content and, I, and I'm reading through this, this rant that I was reading a few days ago. 
And I would actually say that about a half of what this person was saying I agreed with. But it was also abundantly clear to me that this person was really angry. So it made me wonder, like, what happened that made this person so mad? And then there was a, a third thing I was thinking when I was reading this rant, and, and it was, this person is targeting Christianity, but they don't really understand what Christianity is. They were targeting something, and they thought it was Christianity, but they weren't hitting the right target. They were angry about something. They were trying to pick apart something, but what they were picking apart is not Christianity. It's not the message that has been passed along to us from the very beginning. It was something. It just wasn't Christianity. And I'm not always really sure that we have abundant clarity on what Christianity is and what it means to be a Christian. So to that extent, this series, I hope, is really helpful. It's also really helpful if you're new to the faith, if you're new around Christ Community Church, uh, maybe you're here, and this is your first weekend here, or someone dragged you here, and you're just trying to figure it all out. And to get some real clarity on what is all of this is really helpful. It's also really helpful if you're young, if you're middle school or high school or young in your college years, and you're still trying to work this all out and figure out what is this, do I believe it, what is Christianity, what does it mean to follow Jesus, right? Am I a Christian just because my parents were? The obvious answer is no, Right? Like I tell my kids all the time, listen, you're not a Christian just because daddy's a pastor or daddy's a Christian. You have to learn these things, embrace these things, embrace and follow Jesus for yourself. And so it, all of this is really helpful to get clarity. So in 1 John, we see these three tests. We see the theological test. We see the social test, which is really asking this question. And the social test is all about love. Am I able and willing to love other people? even people that mistreat me, right? The theological test is all about who was Jesus, what did he do, what did he teach, and why does it matter? And then the moral test is, if you watched my life, do I do things on purpose because of God's revelation to me and his spirit living on the inside of me? Would you be able to tell I was following Jesus just by watching my life? The moral test we, we get all of these things, and this series is hopefully bringing some clarity to these things. And so we, we have these themes, we have these tests in 1 John, but you know what we haven't done yet? We haven't answered the question together, why is John writing this letter in the first place? Right? There's this group of believers, John's writing a letter to them, and he's writing for a certain reason. There, this is a real group of people in real history, and he's writing a real letter to them. So there's something going on, and we haven't yet drilled down into what that certain something is. There's a problem that John is addressing. And right now, I'm going to admit on the front end that I'm about to possibly bore you for four or five minutes, okay? A little bit of history, a little bit of philosophy, but I promise you if you'll stick with me for the four or five potentially boring minutes that there is a payoff on the back end of those five minutes, okay? So don't slide into your church nap just yet. In ten minutes, if I'm still boring you, by all means, go to sleep. But give me five before you take your nap. All right, there's a problem going on, and it has everything to do with the way they think about Jesus. In that culture, in that time... A very prevalent way to think about the world in their culture was called dualism. Okay? Essentially, it is, there's the spiritual realm, and there's the physical material world, but they are very separate things, and they do not intersect a lot. So you have spiritual, and you have physical. 
And this affected the way that they thought about Jesus. Who was Jesus and what did he do? Because you think about this, you know, when we recite creeds or we sing songs or you look at the revelation of this message that's been passed to us, it talks about Jesus being both divine, the eternal son of God, and coming and taking on human flesh. Well, that right there smacks in the face of dualism. How could you have divine, eternal, spiritual reality become physical? In their minds, that is a really weird thing to, to struggle with. And so they, as they started to, as, as they thought about who Jesus was, there, there was one way of thinking about Jesus that went something like this. Yes, there was this man, Jesus. There is no denying the historical reality that this man, Jesus, walked the earth. It is a historical fact. None of us can argue that. It is a historical fact. The question that we can argue is whether or not that man, Jesus, is the eternal divine son of God. That's what we have to figure out. But there's no denying that this man, Jesus, walked the earth. And so as they think about Jesus and what he did, they would say, okay, there was this man, Jesus, physical reality, humanity. But he wasn't the eternal son of God, divine. There is the, like, the spirit of Messiah, the spirit of the eternal Christ, who would perhaps visit him every once in a while to enable him to do certain things. But they are two very different things. Because the spiritual and the physical cannot be one thing in their mind. So they separate human Jesus from divine Jesus. Well, when you do that, you have a completely different Jesus. And so this kind of thinking is in the church. And there's a group of people that are causing problems. They have a destructive view of Jesus because their view of Jesus is not the right view of Jesus. And not only are they causing problems, but they're now leaving the church... They're removing themselves from the Christian community, and they're trying to convince other people to come with them. So these people are causing a problem. Now, we're going to jump into 1 John chapter 2, and I give you that history lesson and a little bit of philosophy here to explain to you what's going on then, and you might be thinking to yourself, well, that can't possibly be going on today, right? Like, that's a Greek problem. We're not dualists. And what I want to say is, yeah, I'm not so sure we don't struggle with these very same things today. So I'm going to see if I can, I can make that case. Uh, we're picking this up in 1 John chapter 2, verse 18. If you are a rabid note-taker and you are super attentive, you might have noticed that we skipped three verses between where we ended last weekend and where we're picking up this weekend. Um, that is because... Those three verses were recently preached, and so we're taking the opportunity to just kind of jump right over them to start at verse 18. Uh, in a recent series called The Fight, uh, week two of that series, Jameson preached a message on those verses, verses 15, 16, and 17. So we're going to skip over that and jump in at verse 18. So let me read this, and you can follow along in your Bible or on the screens. And as I read it, I'm going to insert my questions and commentary. Because this is, it can be a little bit confusing what we're about to read. All right, here we go. 1 John chapter 2, verse 18. Dear children, this is the last hour. Last hour of what? And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming. Boo! Antichrist. Oh, right? Like, we're not even really sure what that is, but it sounds scary. All right, so the Antichrist is coming. Even now, many Antichrists have come. Holy cow, there's a lot of them? This is how we know it's the last hour. 
They went out from us, but they didn't really belong to us, or if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us, but their going showed that none of them belonged to us. That's delightfully circular reasoning, isn't it? It's like, they were here, but now they're gone, but they were never really here because they left. Verse 20. But you have an anointing from the Holy One. I do? And all of you know the truth. I don't write to you because you don't know the truth, but because you do know it and because no lie comes from the truth. Who is the liar? It's whoever denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a person is the Antichrist, denying the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. As for you, see that what you have heard from the beginning remains in you. All right, so what did I hear from the beginning? If it does... You also will remain in the Son and in the Father, and this is what he promised us, eternal life. I'm writing these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray. As for you, the anointing you received from him remains in you, and you don't need anyone to teach you. Hmm, then what's up with all of the teaching and preaching at church? But as his anointing teaches you about all things, and as that anointing is real, not counterfeit, just as it has taught you, Remain in him. All right, let's see if we can make some sense of this. Now, there's a problem. The problem is, if you are listening at all, these antichrists. There's something about these antichrists, and they're causing a problem and potentially leading people astray. Uh, in, their, in their way of thinking, they, they had some ideas about the antichrist, singular, uh, mainly some kind of political, social figure, person, that in the, in the last times when God is going to consummate everything, God established things back to the order of the way they should be in humanity, that there would be this person that would be anti-God, that he would push against the things of God in, in society and humanity. So they had, had this conception of one person, but then John says, it's not just one. Right now, there's lots of them running around, and they're in among you, and now they're leaving, and they're trying to lead some of you astray. And so the problem here is, there's an antichrist problem. You say, well, that sounds like something else. And what I want to suggest to you is we have an antichrist problem today. We're just not always aware of it. Let's look at how there's, there's a few verses here that help us see what he wants to say about the antichrist. Verses 19 and then verses 22 through 23. They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. So in other words, they weren't really a part of us in the first place. And then verses 22 and 23. Who's the liar? It's whoever denies that Jesus is the Christ, the eternal Messiah. Such a person is the Antichrist, denying the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. And whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. So John is establishing the problem. He's not mincing words here. And he's, he's exposing the fact that the way we think about Jesus is really, really important. This isn't just make it up as you go, whatever's good for you is good for you, and whatever's good for you is good for you. Jesus, John is saying, Jesus is a certain something. 
He is divine. He was man. He came. He did. He spoke. You can't just make it up as you go. And it's really important to have abundant clarity on this message that has been passed along to us from the very beginning. Because there is really bad thinking and teaching going on all over the place about who Jesus is and whether or not he matters and how that matters to your life. There is all kind of antichrist thought, thinking, teaching going on, and it's not just happening back then in the first 200 centuries AD, it happens today, now in 2014. Let me give you a few examples. One, one example would be Jesus is just a good role model. Right? You hear people say this? Right? Like, yeah, I, I believe Jesus was here and he taught good things. You know, I like the whole treat others how you want to be treated. So Jesus is a good role model. He was a good moral teacher, and he's a great example to follow. And so if you find comfort in that, if you find that that gives direction to your life, then that is great for you, wonderful for you. What's going on when you reduce Jesus to that? You're completely denying that he's the eternal son of God. You're completely dismissing what it means that God would come, enter humanity, suffer and die. How absurd that the eternal God would come and suffer, enter humanity and die and then raise back to life. You're just going to dismiss all of that as if it never happened or think about it. You can't just reduce Jesus to man. See, we do the same thing they did back then, right? I, I, I'm going I'm to not put together his divinity and his humanity. I'm just going to separate the two and just recognize his humanity and say, if you want to follow him, go ahead. He's a great example. They, they struggled with this stuff back when John was writing this letter. You know, I, I told you that they, they thought Jesus was just a man and the spirit of the Christ would, would come upon him, but they were two separate things. Because in their minds, they thought this way. If, if Jesus suffered, then he wasn't divine there's no way that God can suffer. And if he was divine, then he couldn't suffer. So they would say it both ways. They had a really hard time reconciling like this whole like eternal God, divine, coming, entering humanity, suffering and dying, right? And if we would all admit it, it's a very complex thing that you can't fully wrap your mind around, but you also can't dismiss it and think of Jesus however you want to think about him. All right, so some people will just put Jesus in the good role model camp, just acknowledging his humanity but not his divinity. Uh, another way this comes up is the opposite. We'll acknowledge, God's, we'll acknowledge divinity, but we won't acknowledge humanity in this way. The greatest question asked in all of humanity, from generation to generation, this is the number one question we ask and struggle with. It's the problem of evil. How could there be a good, all-powerful God and there will be all of this pain and hurt and evil in the world. If God was really good, he'd do something about it. Or maybe he's just not capable. So maybe God is good, but he's not all-powerful. And we try to reconcile all of the pain and the hurt and the evil in the world with the existence of a good and all-powerful God, and people struggle with it. What I find, it's a very complex question. What I find very dishonest sometimes about the way we approach the question is that we will only acknowledge it from a spiritual uh, reality. And here's what I mean by this. We'll look at all of the bad things that go on in the world, and we'll pin it on evil. Evil is a spiritual force, 
And because evil is a spiritual force causing all of this problem in the world, and God is a spiritual reality who could do something about it, we look at God and say, well, there's a spiritual problem, evil, and you're the spiritual all-powerful one, so you should come and fix it. But because you're not, because you haven't made everything perfect yet, I'm going to shake my fist at you and tell you you're the one to blame. Until we step back for a second and be willing to recognize that all of the pain and all of the hurt and everything that's wrong with this world is coming out of you and me. We have done this. If you look around our world and you look at the pain and the evil and the hurt and the broken relationships, we have done this. We have done this to each other. We have done this to our world. It's us. It's a humanity problem. And so in that sense, we need the spiritual to intersect humanity, to intersect the material, physical. We needed divinity to enter and suffer. Somehow this needs to all come together for this all to have some kind of resolution, for there to be some kind of hope, for there to be some kind of fixing of all of this, we need somehow the divine to interact with humanity. But it starts with us recognizing that it's us. That the pain and the hurts coming out of us, the things that come out of my mouth that hurt other people, the things I do that hurt other people that I wish I could take back, it's coming out of me. And it's coming out of you. It's us collectively. We can't just shake our fist at God and tell God he's the one that's to blame. The cross of Jesus Christ is the only thing that addresses the root cause of our problem. Period. And we separate these things. Here, here's, the la here's the last way that we, we do this. This whole dualism thing where we want to separate divinity and humanity. Uh, you ever see the movie Talladega Nights? Where Will Ferrell is saying grace over his meal. And he likes to pray to the baby infant Jesus. And they're getting mad at him because he always prays to the baby infant Jesus. And they're telling him, you know, Jesus grew up. You could pray to the adult Jesus. And he says, I like the Christmas Jesus better. He's cuddly and he's an infant. And, and so they're having this ridiculous conversation about should you pray to the baby Jesus or the adult Jesus. And that whole scene, it's like six minutes long. It's really blasphemous. But the reason that those of us that have watched that movie find that six minutes really funny, because anything that's really funny is really grounded in something that's really, really true. And you're watching those six minutes, and you're laughing because it's completely absurd. And here's why it's completely absurd. Because we like to imagine that we can think of Jesus however we want to think about Jesus. You know, like, well, I like to think of Jesus as if he's this way. And another person will say, well, I like to think of Jesus as if he's this way. Here's the problem with that. We don't just get to make up who Jesus was or is or what he said or what he did or why he matters. Like when you watch Talladega Nights and you watch this, it's so absurd. You're watching this like this dude named his kids Texas and Walker and Texas Ranger. Like he's obviously not the most intelligent man on the earth. And his friend is sitting there and he says, I like to think of Jesus as wearing a tuxedo t-shirt as if to say I'm formal, but I also like to party. It's completely. It's completely absurd, and you're watching this movie, and you're laughing, and you're thinking to yourself, you people are way too stupid to be the ones that get to decide who Jesus is. But it's really not that much more absurd that in our culture, we have these kinds of, kinds of conversations like this. My opinion about who Jesus is or who God is is just as valid as someone else's? I don't think so. 
I don't think we get to make it up as we go along. I don't even think my viewpoint is more valid simply because they put me on a stage and put a microphone on my head. This is the message, the revelation that has been passed along to us from the very beginning. We have been told who Jesus is and what he did and what he taught and why that matters. This is the message that has been passed along to us from the beginning. You know, some people have asked me, uh, Ferris, you have not preached in like three months. What the heck have you been doing? And the answer, well, one of the answers to that is um, that I've been working on helping you get ready for Easter. Uh, I've been working on a project called the Lent Experience. Uh, Ash Wednesday is this coming Wednesday. That kicks off a season called Lent, which is a season that leads into Easter. Just like what Advent is to Christmas, Lent is to Easter. And Lent is a whole season of the year to drill back down into the basics. Who Jesus is, what's really going on on the inside of me, a true reflection of, of my, my sin issues, what's really going on in here, and how has Jesus addressed those, and why the crucifixion and the resurrection that we will celebrate on Good Friday and Easter Sunday is so very, very central to our lives, and how this all works together. And so I've been working on this. It's completely an online experience. It's totally optional. Uh, you can check it out when you go home. These, this journal I'm holding up is available in the resource bookstore. It's just a blank journal. If you choose to do the Lent experience, you can pick it up for a buck to cover the cost of us printing them. Um, but check it out and see if doing something like that might help you regain or gain for the first time some clarity on who Jesus is. Uh, there is a section of the Apostles' Creed that I always found very curious. Do you, do you ever like say things or things, sing things in church and you know in the back of your mind that you have no idea what you're singing or saying? I got some uncomfortable chuckles from the ones that are willing to admit it. We just sang a song earlier about bringing forth the royal diadem. Do you have any stinking idea what that means? Just worshiping. Bring forth the royal diadem. I have no idea what that means. The diadem is just a crown with jewels in it. So you're simply saying when you sing that song, I'm recognizing that Jesus is king. He's Lord of my life. I put the crown on him, not me. That's all that's saying. But we sing it over and over again, but we have no idea. There's a phrase in the Apostles' Creed that I wonder if we have any idea why it's important. Let's take a look and see. You ever wonder why it's important that that phrase is in there, suffered under Pontius Pilate? Like, can't you remove that and that still be the same creed? You know, creeds were written to get some clarity on... What, what this message is that's been passed along to us from the beginning. So uh, this creed, most creeds were written in response to some bad teaching about God and Jesus. And so to get clarity, they would put together these creeds and then Christians recite them together to continually remind us of the fundamentals of this message that we have received. And I look at all of that, and I get why we need to acknowledge that there's one God, and he made everything, and Jesus Christ is his eternal son, and that Jesus entered humanity, conceived by the Holy Spirit. It was the combination of the spiritual and the physical, born of a virgin, which is a miraculous entry. But then the suffered under Pontius Pilate. Why does that even need to be in there? Because it matters on a very real level. The fact that Jesus entered humanity and suffered, that God came. He's, he's not just looking at us from afar and wringing his hands, wondering how we're going to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. But God came, and Jesus suffered. He entered in 
to the real human experience. We do not worship a God that is far and distant and disinterested. We worship a God that came and entered and suffered. And they put in there under Pontius Pilate because as soon as you acknowledge Pontius Pilate was the one that was kind of overseeing his crucifixion and his suffering, you're putting it in real human history. This happened at a real time, in a real place, in real human history, under a real man named Pontius Pilate. This is not just a philosophy or a theory or a nice moral code. This really happened. The divine really entered humanity. God really is near. God really has entered in. He suffered under Pontius Pilate. That's why that phrase matters. It's in response to some really bad teaching about Jesus. So you have all of this antichrist problem, all of this antichrist thinking about Jesus, all this bad thought about Jesus, what's the solution? Well, interestingly enough, the solution in 1 John is what John calls the anointing. That's a really curious solution to the antichrist problem. So let's take a look and see if we can figure out what the anointing is now. Um, It's another one of those words that we really use that I'm not always so sure we have complete clarity on what it means. Um, we, were, we were away for three days this, this past week. Uh, a lot of the pastors in the church went away for three days, holed up in a hotel banquet room for three days of planning, praying, just thinking through the future of Christ's community and what's coming in the next season. Say So we're all in this room. That's proof that we were in that room working. Um, and uh, a little dry erase board, and there's work. So Pastor Randy, our Kids World director, he starts off the three days by praying. Now, we had brought in a guy named Greg Hawkins, an outside consultant, to lead us through the three days of process that we were going through. And so Randy prays for Greg, and he prays this prayer. God, give Greg your anointing and your wisdom to lead this process. What's Randy asking when he prays that God would anoint this guy to lead a planning meeting? Right? Or you're sitting in church, and you happen to really like the sermon, and so you walk out, and you're just like, oh, that was an anointed sermon. What does that mean? Is it a way of expressing that you just like the style of the preacher? Is it a way of expressing that whatever the content happened to be that day, it mattered for you? Or does anointing mean a certain something? Or in a worship service, right? You, you, go, you sit in a worship service and you're praying and you're worshiping. You're like, man, that was just such an anointed time of worship. What are you even talking about? What does this word anointed mean when we use it? If you go back to the Old Testament, you see anointing. You see people getting anointed regularly. And most of the time, this anointing was simply putting someone in a certain role. So like you have a king, you're anointed king. Uh, anointed ruler over this. So sometimes people are entering into a certain role and they're anointed. There's a ceremony. Maybe they put oil on them as a way of symbolically acknowledging, okay, this is now the person that fills this role. Or sometimes there was a certain task that needed to be accomplished. And so a certain person was anointed to accomplish a certain task. And so the anointing was all about recognizing role and task and the ability to do it. And so sometimes it would even talk about God sending his spirit on a certain person for a certain period of time to handle the role or accomplish the task. And so in that sense, the anointing was a very one-time thing. One time from God to this person for this role or this task. The conversation, 
about God's spirit coming and God's anointing coming completely and radically changes in the New Testament, all of a sudden it is everybody who professes Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior is anointed by the Spirit of God, God coming and living on the inside of them so that they might stand in the place they need to stand and accomplish the things they need to accomplish. In that sense, everybody who professes Jesus is anointed. It's not just preachers, it's not just worship leaders, it is everybody who believes on the name of Jesus has received this anointing. The question is really, what is it for? And it's really curious to me as I was reading this, you know, I would think that if antichrist thought is the problem, that really good teaching would be the answer, right? Just write a few more creeds, make sure you clarify everything, and you should be good to go. But John says, no, it's the anointing that's the answer, the solution to the Antichrist problem in our culture. And so let's see if we can figure out how this makes any sense. I, I already told you that John is writing to this group of believers. You ever wonder how churches got started? Right? So you had Jesus and a small group of followers. And Jesus said, I'm going to go back to heaven. I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit. It's better for you if I go because I'm going to send you the helper, the Holy Spirit. And empowered by the Spirit of God, you're going to continue this work. And one day I'll come back at the end and wrap this all up, but for now, this. And all of a sudden, these Christian churches start spreading around the world. And we kind of know that Paul did a lot of this. Paul wrote a lot of our New Testament, so we talk a lot about Paul. And in the book of Acts, which is right after the Gospels, we actually get historical accounts of Paul moving from city to city and interacting in different cities, starting churches. But we do realize that it wasn't just Paul that was starting churches. John had some influence. John started some churches. And they had the Gospel of John, John's account of the life of Jesus. And so John is writing his letter to a group of people that John has significantly influenced. And so there is a very distinct relationship between what you read in the Gospel of John and the kinds of things you see John talking about in his letters. It's almost as if you have this group of people that have come to know Jesus through John's presentation of Jesus in the Gospel of John, but they're thinking about what they see in that Gospel in some weird ways, and so John's trying to fix it. That would be a very basic explanation of the relationship. So, what we're going to do here to try to figure out the anointing is we're going to go back and forth between 1 John and the Gospel of John, uh, mainly to demonstrate to you the relationship between the two. Very specifically, the Gospel of John, chapters 14, 15, and 16. If you read those three chapters, John 14, 15, and 16, read those three chapters in the Gospel, then go read the letter of 1 John, and you will go, whoa. You will immediately see the relationship between the two. Talking about the anointing, the role of the Holy Spirit in our lives, when it comes to fighting against antichrist sentiment in our culture, let's take a look at this. All right? So I'm going to do this three times. 1 John then I'm going to go to the gospel. Then 1 John, the gospel. 1 John, the gospel. I will offer no commentary. You need to engage your minds right now, and you need to start connecting the dots. I'm not going to do it for you. All right? So 1 John, chapter 2, verses 20 and 21. But you have an anointing from the Holy One. And all of you know the truth. I do not write to you because you don't know the truth but because you do know it and because no lie comes from the truth. All right, now to the Gospel of John. 
If you love me, keep my commands. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate, the Holy Spirit, in some translations called the helper or the counselor, to help you and be with you forever, the spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. All this I have spoken while still with you, but the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and remind you of everything I have said to you. And then jumping to chapter 15. When the advocate comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. And you also must testify, for you have been with me from the beginning. All this I have told you so that you will not fall away. All right. Back to 1 John. 1 John chapter 2, verses 24 and 25. As for you, see that what you have heard from the beginning remains in you. If it does, you also will remain in the Son and in the Father. And this is what he promised us, eternal life. Now to the Gospel of John again, chapter 14. Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you'll know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip says, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. And Jesus answers, don't you know me, Philip, even after I've been among you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I'm in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I don't speak on my own authority. Rather, it's the Father living in me who's doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. Now back to 1 John one more time. 1 John chapter 2, verses 26 and 27. I'm writing these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray. As for you... The anointing you received from him remains in you. You don't need anyone to teach you, but as his anointing teaches you about all things and as that anointing is real, not counterfeit, just as it has taught you, remain in him. And now back to the gospel one more time. I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. He'll not speak on his own. He'll speak only what he hears. And he'll tell you what is yet to come. He will glorify me because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. You picking up on the role of the Holy Spirit in our lives? I trust that if you have professed Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, that that spirit that Jesus promised has anointed you. And that spirit has a way of course correction, right? You start going off a little crazy tangent, and he's like, come on back this way, right? You start getting fascinated with certain, certain things that people are teaching that are taking you off course from the message that has been passed on to you from the beginning, and the Holy Spirit has a way of going, ah, come, come on back over here. The Holy Spirit convicts of sin. When you want to go down a certain road, and the enemy's deceiving you a little bit, that that's going to have a payday to it, it's the Holy Spirit that goes, don't go there. 
That is not going to work well for you. It's the Holy Spirit, the anointing that has been invested in us by the Father and the Son, all of them working together. Jesus and I'm in the Father, and the Father's in me, and the Spirit's in me, and the Spirit's in you. And all of this, and all of this talk in John about, and First John about, remaining and abiding. There is this relationship going on where I am in Christ, and Christ is in me. Remain, abide trust that the Holy Spirit has been invested in you. And that, that is the answer to the Antichrist sentiment in our culture. Not just more arguing, not better creeds, but the Spirit of God inside of you, enabling you to walk and live in this culture in a way that is influential, empowering you to embrace what has been passed along to you from the beginning and live it out in this world in the here and now. I'll conclude with a, a quote that I saw on Twitter a few days ago from Rick Warren. You may know Rick Warren. He's the pastor at Saddleback Church in California. An interesting quote. It simply says, Father, forgive me for spending more time talking about you than talking to you. He's acknowledging the abiding stuff, the remaining stuff, the relational part of this, the part that I am in Christ and Christ is in me. This isn't just information. This isn't just rhetoric. This isn't just talk. It's real. We can know Jesus and Jesus be in us, be empowered by the Holy Spirit. The anointing to overcome the spirit of antichrist in our culture is real. And it's been made available to all of us. And I can't think of a better text or topic to lead us into a time of communion where we're talking about abiding in Jesus, remaining in Jesus, recognizing that God has come. He came, entered humanity, and suffered to bring restoration and hope to all of this. What a great way to lead into communion. And so campus pastors... I am going to turn this over to you now to lead your congregations in communion and worship. And for the rest of us here, allow me to do the same. Uh, we're going to spend about 15 minutes or so in worship and communion and prayer together. I want to offer one thought and then a few instructions. We're all somewhat familiar with the passage of script, passages of Scripture that talk about the night where Jesus was with his followers, and they're celebrating the Passover meal together, and Jesus holds up the bread and the cup, and he says, this is my body, and this is my blood, and this is about to happen. I'm about to suffer and die, and it's for you. And they didn't fully understand, really, what he was talking about. And it has established that night, think about this, that night, Jesus with his followers, he established something that you and I join in today. We are living the continuation of this story right now in this room. As we take the bread and the cup, we are remembering that Jesus did in fact come, the eternal Son of God, entered into humanity, suffered, died, resurrected, and it's a game changer. And as we do it, I want to go one step beyond just saying, I remember that it happened. But as you take the bread and you take the cup, I want it to be symbolic for you of the fact that it's not just you are in Christ, 
but Christ is in you. You're taking it in. You're communing with God. His very presence is here with us, in you, in this room, with us. We celebrate and commune together. 